this podcast, I've spoken to some really inspiring people who have been on these kind of epic journeys around the world or these seriously long distance cycles. And I think a lot of people, including myself, look at these trips and you, there's a yearning that you wish that you could go on one of them yourself. But then there's the reality of, oh, I've got rent to pay or oh, I've got a family or I've, I've got a job that's actually not that bad. I quite like it. And suddenly that dream sort of fizzles out and you end up just going on your usual holidays as everyone else in the world does. Which is why I became interested in this idea of the micro-adventure. So this is something dreamt up by writer and adventurer Alistair Humphreys, that you actually can incorporate true adventure into your everyday 9 to 5 routine. So I invited Alistair in and I found him pretty persuasive. By the end of it, I was sold and he packed me off and gave me some instructions to complete my very own first micro-adventure. So you're, you've come up with the micro-adventure as a concept, but you've been on some pretty big adventures as well in the past, haven't you? Um, was it a four-year four year cycle you went on? Yeah, four years cycling around the world. That's the, the longest trip I've done so far, probably ever. Yeah. Um, I've um, rode across the Atlantic Ocean and sailed across the Atlantic and walked across India and the empty quarter desert and couple of expeditions in Greenland and Iceland and up near the North Pole. So so I began my adventuring life just, well, trying to be the next Ranulph finds, basically, just trying to do big, epic, exciting stuff and mm. trying to make that my life, really. Okay. So the, the four-year round-the-world cycle, what, what was your route? Like, where did you actually go when you did that? Uh, well, I set off from my front door in Yorkshire. Mm cycled down through London, um, rode across Europe and through the Middle East to Africa, down to Cape Town, um, sailed across the Atlantic to South America, and then pedalled from Patagonia, from Ushuaia, all the way up the west coast of the Americas up to northern Alaska, to the Arctic Ocean, uh, crossed the Pacific on a boat, and then cycled through Siberia, down Japan, right the way across China, Central Asia, through the Caucasus, Europe, and back to Yorkshire. Wow. I love you described a four-year trip in the space of about 30 seconds. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you casually hop from the southern Cape of Africa to South America. Like, how long does that even take? Um, it took about three weeks on our boat. We were hoping to do it quicker, but we had no wind at all. So we spent quite a bit of time becalmed mid-Atlantic, which is quite a beautiful thing to do, actually. Mm. Okay, so you've done this epic trip, and then you come back. What's it like coming back from a massive trip like that? That is something that is not often thought about, talked about, and I think is definitely underestimated. Um, I think I probably thought that coming home from that trip would solve all my problems and I'd be eternally happy, famous and handsome. Mm. And uh, none of those things necessarily <laughs> followed. Um, I, I loved getting home at first, just being back in one place, back somewhere where I belonged, where I was not some sort of freakish looking strange person I was just a normal bloke again I loved that feeling I loved seeing my family and my friends and that's all fun for a couple of months and then came this sort of empty feeling of thinking wow I've just done that for four years what on earth am I going to do for the next 60 years and I'm not sure I've ever quite solved that question. <laughs> so how did you get from doing these massive macro adventures to the idea of the micro adventure? I got to it because people 
started to see me, people who didn't know me, people who'd read my books perhaps or seen stuff I'd done on the internet, started to, they hear stories about cycling around the world for years or rowing oceans and they start to perceive me as an adventure guy, whereas I think of myself as just a normal guy who's just chosen to do stuff. And I realised there was this weird um, void between people wanting to do adventure and actually doing it. So people really want to do adventure far more than they actually get out and do it. And there's a few problems because big adventures cost a lot of money, they take a lot of time, they are perceived to be hard and complicated and technical and therefore not for normal, ordinary people. And I wanted to try and break down those barriers that stop people getting into adventure. And I wanted to try also to show people that you don't need to go all the way around the world to have an adventure that's perhaps overkill and that actually you can find adventure, challenge, fun, beauty, wilderness, solitude, whatever it is you're looking for in Patagonia, you can probably find it closer to where you live. Okay, and what so what was your... Was there a first micro-adventure, like a formative trip that you thought, right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this and this is this is it? There was a formative micro-adventure, which was um, walking a lap of the M25. I, I lived near the M25 and I was fascinated by this horrible monstrosity of a road that was just busy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I just, I guess in the nature of a traveller, I was just thinking, wow, I wonder where these people are going. I wonder what's over that horizon. And that made me think about the M25 as somewhere I might do a journey. And so I set off to walk around it and started to realise along the way that it was so similar, the experiences were so similar to cycling around the world. It was really uncanny. The The notion of doing a journey with a start and an end point and therefore a purpose, um, the finding wild, beautiful places, even around the M25, the good, kind, random strangers that we're all familiar with from reading books about people going through Mongolia or something, you find these kind, random strangers around the M25 as well. A family invited my friend and I to stay for the night because it was cold and snowy. Um, the trip was so similar to cycling around the world that I realised that it genuinely was an adventure, not a big adventure, of course, and that's why I came up with the term micro-adventure. And I then went on a mission well, it seemed like quite a gamble at the time uh, to try to stop doing the big expeditions and to start chasing these tiny, silly, parochial, local little things and to see whether I whether that I could make that idea catch on. And it has. It has to an amazing degree. And I'm I'm simultaneously delighted and also quite annoyed that my book about microadventures sells far more copies than my four-year struggle around the world <laughs> book uh, it's slightly galling but but it's great and the reason I think is because microadventures are accessible they are um, they fit for people who love the idea of adventure but have real lives as well and jobs and families and houses and cats and dogs and and it's showing these it's, all, it's a couple of things one it's giving people ideas and the other I think importantly is almost giving people permission to be a bit more childlike to say to people you used to enjoy climbing hills, watching the sunset, cooking marshmallows, climbing trees, swimming in rivers. You probably still do, and it's fine. Just go do it. Go do something this weekend, or at least when the sun comes out in the spring. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were doing this M25, can you just paint a picture of what what the landscape's like and where, where were you staying overnight? And could you actually hear the roar of the motorway? Were you literally you know, near it, near it, or were you doing a vague kind of like approximate lap of the M25? 
So I recruited a friend of mine, this fairly idiotic friend who thought it would be a good idea to join me. And our plan was just to walk as near to the motorway as we could at all times. So beyond the verge and the fence, but in the fields alongside. And we just tried to go in those fields, cross country. And that takes you through villages and towns, footpaths, bit of trespassing through fields here and there, through woods and building estates and just the whole range of stuff really um we tried to always be seeing the motorway sometimes it was hard so we always made sure we kept it at least within earshot and we tried as much as we could to just sleep right next to it and this crazy 24-hour roar um whilst you're just over the fence in the little wood the snow on the ground the sort of silence of the wood and the roar of the road and foxes and rabbits scurrying around in this little bit of woodland and the motorway just there it was quite incongruous but it was really surprising how frequently we found beautiful little bits as long as you're willing to contract your your vision so that this 200 square meter wood we're in is sufficient to count as wilderness and beauty which i think it is Mm. then there's lots of pockets of wilderness and beauty along the way and the bonus of lots of kebab shops as well Kebab shops. Yeah, we uh, we. It's a good thing of doing an expedition around the M25. You're never very far from chips <laughs> <laughs> and a kebab. Like a true adventurer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned you have to trespass every now and then, and part of micro adventure, I guess, is stretching the law a bit, which feels like it's not a very British. I feel like Brits are quite stick to the law. Like I'm not going to trespass. I'm not going to camp when I'm not allowed to. How does how does the idea marry? with our, how conservative we are in that sense. Okay. Um, it surprises me how often people worry about the legality of sleeping in a field when I would wager that every single person who asks me about the legality of a sleeping sleeping in a field has driven a car beyond the speed limit, which I wager is a far more genuinely dangerous and bad thing to do. And really, if you're sleeping in a field and leaving no litter, causing no one any bother... No one ever sees you. No one. Everyone's sitting inside watching TV, so no one finds you. But if they do, you just smile politely, have a chat, tell them what you're doing. They laugh, think you're a bit weird, and go about their day. There's really no problem with this at all. The, um, in my mind, the technicality of it is that in Scotland and increasingly in Dartmoor, you're allowed to wild camp wherever you want uh, within reason. Uh, in England, in theory, you're supposed to always ask permission, and of course. Um, you shouldn't do any camping that's clearly irritating. Um, but I think if you're just in some random wood or in a, a field or sorry, not a field on a hilltop or by a beach and you're in a bivy bag, you leave no mess, you're causing absolutely no problem at all. I think of all the crimes it's possible to commit, I'd say that is about the smallest I could possibly think of. <laughs> yeah. OK, but I guess I'm playing devil's advocate here. Sure. But uh in terms of the safety aspect of it, you must have done loads of these micro-adventures. Has there ever been a point where you thought, I'm actually a bit scared? Like, what was that noise? Or, I, I, was, I swear I saw some dodgy bloke over there following me. Like, Have you ever had that feeling of, God, I'm in too deep here? Okay, so there are, um, there are a few bad people in the world, of course. And therefore, anything you do, you need to pay a little bit of, uh, be careful about. Um Having said that, I think most people would be quite happy on a summer's day to walk up a hill in the middle of nowhere and enjoy the sunny day. And and yet, for some reason, there's this perception that once it goes dark, that remote, perfectly safe hill suddenly fills up with axe murderers. <laughs> and uh, this is just some sort of 
left over from our caveman days. I still get this. When I lie on top of a hill in the middle of the night, I start worrying about murderers and ghosts and things. Whereas the reality is that axe murderers are probably not going to be up some random hill at all. Mm. And they're very unlikely to be up that hill after dark because they'll be at home watching crime watch or something to see if they're featuring and uh, and it's just it's a perceived thing having said that i can see how people feel nervous about it so what so i often encourage people for their first one to go do it with a few friends a bit of peer pressure helps overcome that nervousness and um and uh, particularly women often feel a bit anxious and i suggest doing a going with a few people just to just to summon up your, the nerve until you re, until you at a position where you can think rash and think, actually, I'm sleeping on top of a hill in the middle of nowhere. This is significantly safer than being in my car where I might get run over or walking, being in a city where there's probably a few axe murderers or most dangerous of all, sitting on my sofa waiting till I get fat and die of a heart attack. <laughs> That's a nice way of looking at it. <laughs> One thing I did last year was I did a just a little thing for myself for four seasons of micro-adventure. So on mm. the the summer solstice, the winter solstice, so the longest and shortest days, and then the equinoxes, the equal length days and nights in springtime, I went to the exact same place to sleep out for a night. And the reason I did that was I wanted to see how one place, one woodland, changed over the four seasons to see it in spring, summer, autumn and winter. It was really beautiful. And it was also an interesting experience for me to see, to go back to the same place four times in a year. It's quite a reflective feeling of thinking how my last three months had gone, maybe setting some dreams for the next three months. And it was it was a really nice thing. It was so nice, in fact, that I vowed to carry it on for the rest of my life. And um, typical lazy person, haven't bothered this year. So I'm, I live in a city. I live in London. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be also city dwellers. How would you suggest that somebody who lives in a city embraces the micro-adventure? When I began micro-adventures, my thinking was that I was trying to get people to do big, wild, epic stuff, but within the constraints of real life, i.e. one week round the M25 or one week climbing in Scotland. And what I've learned over time doing this sort of stuff is that most people don't easily have a week to go disappear off to the mountains of Scotland and that most people are like you. They're urban, living, professional people with plenty of enthusiasm, but not much spare time. And so the, the micro-adventures have become popular the smaller that I've made them. So the simpler and simpler and simpler. So cutting out fancy rafts and boats and ice axes and cutting out the mountains of Scotland and getting down to my simplest notion of a micro-adventure, which is the, the five to nine adventure. So people taking you as a case study, you've got a nine to five job. Um, you work hard nine to five and that perhaps gets in the way of your dreams of adventure. But what you can do is one evening after work at five o'clock, instead of heading home to do what you normally do, watch bad TV and eat Chinese takeaway on how your own you, how did you know? <laughs> with your cat and your mum, is uh, you've got 16 hours of freedom from 5 p.m. until 9 a.m. the next morning. What could you do in that time? And it's hard being right here in the middle of a city to imagine that in less than an hour from here, there is countryside trees and the ocean and hills and so no one in the country lives more than an hour away from somewhere that's wild and beautiful so it's entirely possible after work to head out of the city with friends if you're scared of axe murderers um, in the summer if you're being a wimp about the weather and to to go sleep on a hill or the beach and be out under the stars swim in a river get back on the train be back to your desk 
for nine o'clock the next morning. What I've really struggled to do is try and persuade people to try it once. And I get so many emails from people who essentially say, I really wanted to do it, but it sounded hard for X, Y, Z reason. But I did it and I realized it was so simple and I'm definitely going to do it again. Okay, I think I think I'm approaching the point where I'm ready to be fully converted to to the micro adventure. So, right, here's here's my detail. So I live in South London. I've got a bicycle and as you say I work 9 to 5. So what should what do you think my first micro adventure should be? Um I think you should So what I think you should do is ideally find one or two other people in your office or your friends at home who you could be persuaded into it because that way you've got less reason to wimp out on the day. Um, Either, depending on how busy you are, either schedule in a date in your diary and make it non-negotiable or just play it by ear by the weather forecast for the week. So you found a date, get your kit together, sleeping bag, bivvy bag, some food, um, and then you've got to work out where to go. Um, Living south London, then you're really not too far from... Basically, once you're past the M25... You're getting towards the Kent Downs, the Weald, the South Downs. There's lovely hills and proper beautiful countryside there. Um, And you could either cycle out there in a couple of hours or you could jump on a train, um, which might be a better option because then you'd be able to be get on the train back into light, back into London for for work the next morning. So I'd finish work one evening, head out to wherever you've decided to go, find some village station, get off at the village station, go to the village pub, eat your food there so you don't need to bother with fancy cooking gear, go sleep on the hill with your friends, set your alarm for sunrise, run back down the hill, jump on the train back into central London, get a um, Big Mac breakfast or whatever uh, people like you eat, and then uh, into your desk for nine o'clock, slightly smelly but with a story to tell. All right, you're on. Here I am at London Bridge Station. It's about 5.30 p.m. I've just come straight from the office. Uh, people, pretty much everyone around me is wearing suits, whereas I am wearing a 50-litre rucksack with a tent in it and a sleeping bag. And I'm looking forward to it. Please do not leave your luggage unattended on the station. This train is the southern service to Tattenham Corner. We are now approaching Chipstead. Alistair, you doubted me, but here I am on a train out of London on a micro-adventure. So as you set me, I left work at 5pm, uh, met up with my girlfriend Vicky. I've got a tent and a sleeping bag in my big rucksack, and we're heading towards Tadworth in the North Downs where we will walk to a pub, it's about an hour walk, and then have a couple of pints and put our tent up in a field somewhere. Should be fun. So here we are, we're out of London and we're on our way to the pub. We're on a kind of classic woodland walk with bare trees around us seen a couple of rabbits scuttling around. Um, the only thing, the only reminder of civilization at the moment is the roar of the M25, which you can probably just about hear. I think it's about a mile away from here. It's quite shocking how loud it is, but 
other than that is greenery. We haven't seen one person for about 20 minutes. Um, it feels a world away from the office, which I left about two hours ago. So we've made it to the pub and we've just gone into, the, there's a little forest nearby. Um, so we've walked into there and we found a nice little clearing. So Vicky's currently getting the tent stuff out of the bag. And the light is going pretty rapidly, so I think we better get this up. Yeah. You've got a nice day though. I know. We're really lucky. Hottest day of the year so far. Right. Yeah. Could have been a very different experience. You might have got blown down the whole time. Alright, should we have a seat? Yeah. So we've made it. It's pitch black. And it's really exciting. It feels great to be here. If, uh, right now I'm facing north, so I'm looking over towards London and the sky is a kind of bruise-like orange. But then when I turn around, it's pitch black up ahead, but I can hear the motorway just roar. It's non-stop. So I'm now going to head back into the tent. Good morning. Feels pretty nice to be woken up by birds rather than my phone vibrating on my bedside table. It's 6.30am. The sun is... I think the sun's just risen. So it's quite a nice kind of half-light in the forest. And... We've yet to have seen... A person still I thought there might be some dog walkers but not yet um, I think I slept during the night it's one of those nights where it feels like I didn't really sleep at all but probably did but we are now going to roll everything up put it back into our bags listen to that it's a monkey and then we're gonna head over to the station Here I am back at London Bridge and my micro adventure has now come to a close. I've really enjoyed it and I just want to say thanks to Alistair for pushing me that extra mile to, to actually go off and do this and I'd, I'd encourage other people to do the same. I mean I've got to say I feel really weird, I'm absolutely knackered but I think it's worth it. Right, Charing Cross, platform 8. Okay, so the weather was really nice. Like, we were really lucky. It was the hottest day of the year so far. I don't think it dropped much below 15 degrees during the night. Um, so a part of me did think in the morning when we were walking to the station and the sun was rising, I thought if it was raining, this could actually be a bit grim. And likewise, I was absolutely knackered that day at work. So my productivity was pretty, it was admittedly pretty low. But I did find the whole experience to be pretty eye-opening in the end. 
I'm not going to pretend that I felt connected with nature. We were, we were so close to the M25. I think it's impossible to feel truly connected to nature. But what I did feel was that it broke up the routine. And that was what was exciting and enlightening about my micro adventure. So if you're inspired or interested or you fancy giving it a go, it's really easy. Get on Google Maps, zoom out, go on the satellite view and see where the nearest bit of vast countryside is. Like Alistair says, everyone lives within about an hour of some beautiful countryside. And just give it a go. Thank you to Alistair Humphreys for coming in. You can check out alistairhumphreys.com to read his blogs, buy his books and watch his lovely videos. Thanks also to my producer Alana Chance, to George D and Keith Drew from Rough Guides, and to my exec producers Ruth Barnes and Laura Sheeter from Chalk and Blade. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're really enjoying it, you could even give us a rating and a review. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.